the Nebraska Lecture Series celebrates the university's 150th anniversary. You can find videos of the monthly lectures at research.unl.edu slash Nebraska Lectures. In this lecture, Grand Island, Nebraska native John Sorensen tells us the story of Grace and Edith Abbott. They are two sisters from Grand Island who championed social justice for women, immigrants, and children. Sorensen has directed theater and films, is founding director of the New York Public Four Corners World Culture Series, and launched the Jumble Shop Theater of Greenwich Village. We Americans love to honor our leaders, but too often we forget the noble men and women like Grace Abbott, who have silently and unknown accomplished more for the betterment of humanity than has come from the clamor and publicity which surround the acts of the powerful and influential. Few in this world have done as much good as Miss Abbott has accomplished. Thousands, yes, millions of little children have grown up into noble manhood and womanhood because of her work. Upon the brow of this great woman, history will place a diadem of virtue and honest endeavor second to none. U.S. Senator George Norris of Nebraska, 1939. Grace Abbott was one of, perhaps the, great champion of children's rights in American history. As chief of the United States Children's Bureau, Miss Abbott was the highest ranking and most powerful woman in the U.S. government at the time that the Great Depression hit. Her influential work has been credited with leading the way to the creation of the Social Security Act and the United Nations UNICEF program. Miss Abbott was a woman of intriguing contradictions, a lifelong Republican Party member and a lifelong liberal activist. She was a native of the Nebraska Prairie Frontier who spent much of her adult life in the poorest immigrant quarters of urban Chicago, an unmarried woman who was nicknamed the mother of America's 43 million children. Grace Abbott was a public figure who was both much adored and bitterly, sometimes violently, attacked. She was a born and bred pioneer, the first woman nominated for a presidential cabinet post and the first person sent to represent the U.S. at a committee of the League of Nations. Her courageous struggles to protect the rights of immigrants, to increase the role of women in government, to save children from the abuses of child labor, are filled with adventurous tales of the remarkable human ability to seek out suffering and to do something about it. She was a bold and defiant woman who changed our country more profoundly than have many presidents. U.S. Representative Edward Keating summed up the feelings of innumerable Americans when he stood on the floor of the Congress in 1939 and said, quite simply, to me, there was something about Grace Abbott which always suggested Joan of Arc. Injustice and cruelty to children are as old as the world. We have made some progress. We see the ways more clearly now than in the past, and with clearer vision, we can do more, go further. Without apology, then, I ask you to use courageously your intelligence your strength and your goodwill in the removal of the barriers which have retarded children in the past. There will, I warn you, be discouragement and disappointments. 
New standards of what constitutes social justice will develop. But the cause of children must triumph eventually. The important thing is that we should be on our way. Perhaps you may ask, does the road lead uphill all the way? And I must answer, yes, to the very end. But if I offer you a part in a long, hard struggle, I can also promise you great rewards. So, I, thank you. That is partly just to get some pictures in your head as, as I share both of the sisters with you. And I've got a, I will say, a, a three movement suite for you of the Sisters of Grace and of Edith. So I'll begin part one with the Abbots of Nebraska. In the June 1936 issue of a groundbreaking magazine called the Survey Graphic, there was an article entitled The Abbots of Nebraska. It begins with a word portrait of two best friends who happened to be sisters. On the south side of Chicago, within clear reach of the university chimes, stands a roomy brick house. It has the high ceilings, wide doorways, and mahogany woodwork of the late 1890s. The living room is large enough to hold, without jostling, the old and the new. Fine, old, hand-carved black walnut furniture, comfortable modern chairs. There are pots of ivy, an open fireplace, and there's a little child's rocker, quaint but sturdy. Grace says it was Edith's, but Edith says it belonged to Grace. Here on a sunny afternoon in April 1936, I sat at tea with the Abbott sisters, Edith, who is Dean of the University of Chicago's School of Social Service, and Grace, who was, until recently, the chief of the U.S. Children's Bureau. Our talk veered here and there, touched on influences that shape careers, and settled down to a discussion of what led these sisters into social work, before social work even knew itself by that name. Edith answered firmly, it was just a series of accidents. Say what you like, People make good because of hard work, of course, but the doors of opportunity are often opened by chance or luck. Well, the story of the Abbott sisters is a tale of a happy combination of hard work and good luck, and of two personalities that often seemed quite contradictory, but which fit together beautifully to make an unbeatable team. As Edith, in her analytical way, put it, I could assemble the facts and write a report, but Grace had the gift of applying the proper legislative remedy. Put another way, each sister had her special ability and her distinct way of being. Grace, taking naturally to center stage in the public eye, while Edith, just as naturally, preferred to work in the wings. And yet, even with all of their differences, almost every action of one was stamped by the character of the other. It's often all but impossible to tell who wrote what in any of their speeches, as each sister constantly borrowed from and donated to the other. A colleague described their creative collaborations this way. Although for many years Grace Abbott was separated from her sister by a thousand miles of space, the flood of letters that went back and forth, the long distance phone calls, the frequent trips to Chicago from Washington or to Washington from Chicago, attest to the close contact that was maintained and the extent to which advice was sought and given on each other's problems. My sister thinks was a phrase which we at Chicago heard over and over again. What one sister thought frequently was cited to explain a modification in the thinking of the other sister. A second colleague added simply, a beautiful affection kept them so close together and harmonized their interests. The Abbott sisters from their earliest childhood were a team. Edith the Elder leading the way with her patient capacity for academic and scholarly achievements, while the ever wilder and more risk-taking Grace would sometimes lag far behind and at other times would rush well ahead, 
spurred on by her older sister's challenges into territories that Edith herself might have been too prudent ever to have explored. There is something in their personal story that suggests a pair of introvert-extrovert sisters that one wouldn't be surprised to find in a Jane Austen novel. In any case, certainly the best summing up of the relationship of Grace and Edith Abbott comes in a single sentence from Edith herself, who, in the dedication of one of her books, wrote simply, to Grace Abbott, sister and comrade through all the years. Part two. Grace Abbott, A Life Among the Shock Troops. During World War I, American newspaper writers coined a provocative expression, the shock troops. The term designated those elite soldiers who were being ordered into the war's most perilous combat offensives, into the very shock of the battle. One day at about this time, a young woman named Grace Abbott came across that journalistic phrase. The woman was an ardent pacifist and an anti-war protester. All the same, the terminology of warfare never seemed to be far from her lips. She spoke of the casualties lost and of the battlefront service given by her colleagues in the struggle for human rights. Grace Abbott was immediately struck by the pertinence of the newspaper's expression, as it might be applied to a different kind of conflict, one in which she herself was deeply engaged. Before long, she was forcefully asserting that, quote, the movement to end child labor has in every country supplied the shock troops in the struggle for decent working conditions for all citizens. There was no exaggeration in her analogy. Take a look at the mortality rate of children killed while working in the factories in those days, or the mines. Read the stories of infants and mothers left dead or permanently crippled by grossly mishandled childbirthings. Then you'll understand that the early 20th century crusade for children's rights truly was being carried on in a war zone. If you continue reading those news reports, you'll see too that this woman, Grace Abbott, was there, fighting and living for several decades on the battle's very front line. She was the great American champion of children's rights, bringing health care and financial assistance to mothers and infants who, in earlier days, had been abandoned to sickness and death. And too, she was leading the fight to end child labor. The combative way was nothing new to Grace. It was the life into which she had been born. Her mother's family had worked on the Underground Railroad in slavery days before the Civil War. Her father was a staunch abolitionist who had been left for dead while fighting as a soldier in Lincoln's Union Army. Both of her parents were pioneers along the rugged western frontier of the mid-1800s. While Grace Abbott was still a little girl on the wild Nebraska prairie, she had met and kept company with her family's many unusual house guests, including suffragist heroines Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone. Before she had started school, Grace had already given several years of childhood service to the new women's suffrage movement of the Midwest, working alongside her remarkable mother and father, who were leading activists of that time and place. Grace's parents were looked upon as eccentrics by the people of their little prairie town of Grand Island, and Grace, too, was always considered different. She was regularly in trouble at school, and her sister Edith records a typical episode of a teacher saying with exasperation, Grace, I don't know what to do with you. I'll have to speak with your mother, to which Grace replied, but mother doesn't know what to do with me either. <laughs> and sometimes I don't know what to do with myself. This combination of abundant energy on one hand and of uncertainty as to purpose on the other kept Grace in a painful psychological quandary for many of her early years. Upon graduating from high school, she hesitated for over a decade before committing herself to a path in life. At the age of 29, she was still living at home with her parents and working at a modest teaching job at the local high school. Then, in the first years of the 20th century, Grace Abbott finally made her leap into the world. Within little more than a decade, she went from working at her hometown high school to being the most powerful and highest ranking woman in the entire U.S. government. 
She was slow to start, but when she got going, she was explosive. In 1907, Grace Abbott boldly left behind her well-to-do rural home to live for several years in the midst of the desperately poor immigrants of urban Chicago, alongside her mentor, Nobel Prize winner James a Jane Addams. There, settled among the newly arrived Greeks and Poles and Russian Jews of the neighborhood, Abbott stood up in court for a young Bohemian victim of rape. She organized help for crippled and defrauded Italian laborers. She brought hope and pragmatic solutions to the problems of thousands of America's newest citizens. Grace also worked as a muckraking journalist for the Chicago Evening Post. There she told a wide audience of readers about the plight of what were called the lost immigrant girls. Young women, newly arrived in the U.S., speaking little or no English, who were being kidnapped and forced into prostitution and slave labor. And as the director of the Immigrants Protective League, she became an influential national leader, defending the rights of her immigrant friends before even the President of the United States. Perhaps the crowning achievement of Grace's career as an immigration activist came in January 1912 when she was called to Washington to testify before Congress about an oppressive literacy test that was being proposed to restrict future immigration. She was ardently opposed to the bill, protesting, it's going to establish an unfair standard that will keep out people who, through no fault of their own, have grown up without the opportunity for schooling. Grace felt that she would have been negligent indeed to all her family obligations if she did not protest against the literacy test for immigrants, for her own first American ancestor was entirely illiterate. Her name was Mary Chilton. She came to America in, eight, in 1620 in a ship called the Mayflower, but to the end of her life she was never able to either read or write. Hers is one of the few 17th century wills preserved in the archives of, archives of Massachusetts, but that will is signed not by her name but by her mark. Grace believed in the old tradition of the right of asylum in America, and, was, and she impressed many with her statement that this policy was not radicalism, but a heritage that had been handed down to her by eight generations of American ancestors who had made every sacrifice to establish and maintain this right. Even after her strong testimony, the harsh bill was adopted by, by the Congress, but it never became law. It was crushed by a presidential veto. Why? As President Taft explained, it was the statement of a young woman, Grace Abbott, at a hearing I held that persuaded me to veto that restriction. Director Abbott soon thereafter became the first person appointed by the U.S. to a committee of the League of Nations, an event that was hailed at New York's Women's Council, according to one witness, quote, as if it were the opening of heaven itself. At last, Grace was named to be one of the top women in the U.S. government, leading for many years the bitterly contested national fight against child labor as chief of the U.S. Children's Bureau. She often took for her trailblazing efforts the calumny of male politicians. She was decried by one as a would-be woman boss carrying out Shylock political deals, and by another as a menopausal maniac with a Mussolini complex. <laughs> In response to these insults, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt came to her friend's defense by calling Grace Abbott, quote, one of the great women of our day, a definite strength which we count on for use in battle. Abbott's own replies to her adversaries were equally forthright. When confronted with the then frequent question as to why any woman should choose the strenuous life of public service, she responded by criticizing her critics as, quote, lotus eaters who prefer to live in a gray twilight in which there is neither victory nor defeat. It's impossible for them to understand, she said, that to have had a part in the struggle, to have done what one could, is in itself the reward of effort and the comfort in defeat. Grace Abbott lived at the heart of her generation's most decisive battles for social justice. Her time as the highest ranking woman in the US government was that crucial historical moment 
when women were at last establishing their permanent place in the nation's political life. Her influence on the succeeding generations of women in public service has consequently been vast. Chief Abbott was the first woman in American history to be nominated to a presidential cabinet post, Secretary of Labor in the Hoover administration. She was also therefore the first woman attacked for aspiring to such a position. She became the center of a volatile national campaign during which her nomination was supported by the likes of civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois and resisted ironically and successfully by Hoover himself. Abbott's personal defeat in her hopes for the cabinet position was nevertheless a victory in the progress of women in government, for she was in effect the first soldier on the beachhead, the one who took the brunt of sniper fire and thus enabled the next woman nominee, Frances Perkins, to make her way through to the opposition's stronghold. But Abbott's political achievements went much deeper than this sort of sacrificial offering. As chief of the U.S. Children's Bureau, she ran the very first federal grants in aid welfare program in U.S. history, the Influential Maternity and Infancy Act, and she was the only trained social worker at the top levels of American government at the onset of the Great Depression. Accordingly, her efforts led the way to the creation of the federal emergency relief effort during the Depression, of the Social Security Act, and of international children's work that later came to fruition in the United Nations UNICEF program. Through her life, Grace Abbott's method of work was intellectual without being academic. Frances Perkins, Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor, described it this way, quote, Grace Abbott put herself in direct contact with poverty and trouble, letting her own experience show her what needed to be done. And then she did it. Along the way, Grace created an important literary heritage as well. She utilized the many communication forums of her day, from magazine articles and pamphlets, including some of the best sellers of the government presses, to public speeches and motion pictures. When radio broadcasting became possible in the 20s, Abbott seized upon this new venue too with a weekly series airing on NBC, thus becoming one of the first female broadcasters to a national audience. Over the course of her career, Grace Abbott wrote and spoke extensively concerning a wide array of matters, but her best communiques are those that deal with children's rights. It's in this area that the Abbott contribution remains most alive, for her words on child welfare still speak with urgency and call out for action. Eighty years after her death, her child welfare writings remain alive and able to influence contemporary debate on the hot-button issues of child labor, education, and health care that continue to dominate the news media of our day. By reading her speeches of the 1920s and 30s, we discover the crucial role which she played in developing one of the great principles in the history of social policy, that a child does not belong exclusively to its parents or guardians, but that it is, from the earliest age, a unique member of the society in which it lives and that furthermore, the society has obligations to each and every one of its children, responsibilities to make certain that the child is granted its fundamental human rights to health, to protection from abuse, and to education. Grace Abbott was, of course, not alone in putting forward this idea, but she was among the forefront of those who proposed and established, through painstaking legislative and administrative work, the principle of government responsibility for child welfare. The results of this quiet social revolution, as evidenced in the improved opportunities for the health and education of the vast masses of people, must be counted among the great developments in the history of the human race, and one which we are even now merely in the beginning stages of. The shift in social welfare conditions in the past hundred years has been so pervasive that we sometimes take it quite for granted, but it's useful for us to remember that much effort was required to affect these changes. A small town Ohio newspaper editorial made this point in 1934, saying, quote, 
Today, it's comparatively easy to persuade any community that its children must be safeguarded against disease and malnutrition, that for their youthful shortcomings must be meted out a different sort of punishment than is given criminals, and that young folk are better off in schools than in factories. All this is an accepted fact today, but it's undoubtedly due to the steady campaign of the Children's Bureau, and the driving force behind that bureau is Miss Grace Abbott. As we encounter the story of Grace's life and read her provocative words, we come to understand why she inspired both deep admiration and violent attacks. We see how it's possible for one writer to call her work, quote, the greatest thing ever done in America in behalf of the activities of hell, while at the same time another affectionately dubs her mother to America's 43 million children. We see, too, why Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt spoke with such deep admiration for this woman whom he addressed as a great humanitarian who rendered service of inestimable value to the children and mothers and fathers of the country. Of course, Abbott could at times, like many another pioneer and revolutionary, be impatient, a bit self-righteous with her enemies, and even irritatingly insistent upon her ideals. Still, her story offers a compelling example of how one middle-class, middle-American, a longtime member of the Republican Party, chose to devote her life to causes that are often shrugged off as somebody else's problem. And by so doing, she changed our country more profoundly than of many presidents. When Chief Abbott, only 60 years old, died in 1939, Congresswoman Caroline O'Day paid an homage that went straight to the heart of her finest achievements, saying that Grace Abbott's influence will extend to future generations, not only in our own country, but in many parts of the world. Thousands of mothers and children are alive today who might have died but for the beneficent activities which Grace Abbott initiated or furthered. And Senator George Norris of Nebraska chided his listeners for the lack of attention they paid to Abbott's indispensable work, pointing out that we Americans love to honor our leaders, but too often we forget the noble men and women like Grace Abbott who have, silently and unknown, accomplished more for the betterment of humanity than has come from the clamor and publicity which surrounds the acts of the powerful and influential. U.S. Representative Edward Keating summed up the feelings of many others when he said quite simply, to me there was something about Grace Abbott which always suggested Joan of Arc. As well, more personal and intriguing testimonies came at the time of Grace's death, such as a touching letter tucked into a beaten up envelope found in one of the Abbott archives. Postmarked from a tiny little timber camp in Finland, the writer, an American, was doing some kind of social work there. Her letter was a response to Grace's death and was dated October 1st, 1939. Uh, Hitler had just invaded Poland, war had just been declared, and the woman wrote, Even in this grim year, the earth seems better just knowing how Grace's life ran. I get very tired of the political speeches these days about there being no more frontiers, when there's something to do in every direction, and about this being the end of civilization, when behind all the bloody lies and meanness and two arrogant ideologies, our dear Nebraska earth has grown such people as Grace. When the tumult and shouting of this war dies, all the things she planted will be coming up. I feel so poor without her and so rich in having had her. Do you remember that summer years ago when I used to murmur, if we're having a guest, can't it be Grace Abbott? <laughs> yeah. We don't know much of anything about the woman who wrote that letter, not even her last name. But whoever she may have been, her simple words are even more impressive than are the important White House statements and press clippings of the time. Still, there's something about the combination. The way that Grace had of touching the big names, as well as this anonymous woman, which says something quite remarkable. In her radio programs and speeches of the 20s and 30s, Grace would sometimes address the younger people in her audience. In one Depression-era talk, she frankly discussed the difficulties of her own life work, and at the same time made a plea for her young listeners to consider taking up the difficult life of social service themselves. She said, 
Injustice and cruelty to the children, to children, are as old as the world. We have made some progress. We see things more clearly now than in the past. And with clear vision, we can do more, go farther. Without apology, then, I ask you to use courageously your intelligence, your strength, and your goodwill toward children in the progressive removal of the economic barriers which have retarded the full development of children in the past. There will, I warn you, be discouragements and disappointments. But the cause of children must triumph ultimately. The important thing is that we should be on our way. Perhaps you may ask, does the road lead uphill all the way? And I must answer yes to the very end. But if I offer you a long, hard struggle, I can also promise you great rewards. Justice for all children is the high ideal in a democracy. That simple promise of a life well lived, an existence well used, which she herself discovered only through a painful, often lonely lifetime spent among the shock troops, is Grace Abbott's great and lasting victory. And I will conclude with Edith, and I'll let her talk for herself. In fact, from virtually where I'm standing here, she was invited back to the university for what they used to call Charter Day uh, in 1939. I think it was the 70th Charter Day. And she gave a talk called The New Frontiers of Social Progress. She said, Frontier is a cherished word to those of us who are Nebraska born and bred. Those of us who are children of the old frontier were brought up hearing the story of the making of a state in the prairie wilderness. And we knew the men and women of courage, ability, and boundless energy who had faced the difficulties of blizzards and droughts and other hardships of the covered wagon days. To the young soldiers like my father who came from Lincoln's armies, the Western Plains were the land of promise, and the early westward journey was a thrilling pilgrimage. Wherever they went, the historians tell us that those early settlers made civilization, even when there seemed little to make it with or from. But those days of early Nebraska are now only memories of a day that is gone, and there are new frontiers as important as those of the Western Plains. We're facing a changing world today. New definitions of our objectives, new statements of the faith that is in us are called for if we are to cross the surviving frontiers that lie before us today. The word frontier has been associated chiefly with places, with geography, with very objective difficulties, but gradually it has also come to be used in connection with the crossing over from any main traveled road to a new road to freedom. There are several of these frontiers in the field of public welfare that we have crossed in recent years and others still before us that we must cross in the near future. There are great reaches of territory beyond some of them, as yet unexplored and stretching out to a kind of no man's land. Now, I'm told that people are tired of hearing about relief, but of course this is a little like letting a smallpox epidemic get underway because you're tired of hearing about smallpox. <laughs> Unfortunately, we cannot be tired of relief until the day comes when the poor shall be no longer with us. I've even been told that people are tired of the social workers who still talk about relief. But the social workers' lot is cast with the country's disinherited people. Social workers who come and go from the bare homes with the empty cupboards would be grievously recreant if they failed to be persistent in behalf of these people whose need is so great. Social workers are no more kind, no more generous or full of sympathy than the businessmen or the lawyers or the rank and file of people who are tired of relief. But the social workers know at first hand these unfortunate families. Social workers feel the responsibility for this misery as they come and go day by day from these unhappy homes. Homes of men, women, and children without fuel in a frozen winter, suffering from devastating illness with no money for doctors, children without proper clothing to go to school, women unnecessarily dying in childbirth. If the social workers have seemed annoying in their demands, it's because they know the need is so great and hungry children do not wait. 
Providing funds two years from now will not feed the children who are hungry and undernourished today and restore for them the foundations that are slowly being destroyed. The new social frontiers of today are none of them easy to cross, but those who are children of the pioneers know how to travel over very difficult roads. My father used to tell us that pioneers were the sons of Martha and that nine generations of pioneer ancestors should have left us with courage to face the difficulties of life. He often quoted a favorite poem in which Rudyard Kipling told the story of the sons of Martha. The sons of Mary seldom bother, for they have, an inherit they have inherited that good part. But the sons of Martha favored their mother, of the careful soul and the troubled heart. And because she lost her temper once, and because she was rude to the Lord her guest, her sons must wait upon Mary's sons, world without end, reprieve or rest. And the sons of Mary smile and are blessed, for they know the angels are on their side. They know in them is the grace confessed, and for them are the mercies multiplied. They sit at the feet, they hear the word, they see how truly the promise runs. They've cast their burden on the Lord, and the Lord, he lays it on Martha's sons. Sons and daughters of Nebraska, we are the children of the sons of Martha, and we're grateful that this has been our heritage in life. We've been brought up not to be afraid of difficulties. We have been brought up to believe in the strenuous life. We're not afraid of failure, only of living in that gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Uh, and as I noted earlier too, you see the crossover. Edith is quoting Grace, or is Grace quoting Edith before? Who knows, they're using the same phrases. On the theme of what Edith took us to, of the new frontiers of social justice, this project, which began just about the Abbott sisters, uh, evolved into something which is attempting to be an application of their principles, uh, which is a, a film that I made called The Quilted Conscience, uh, which has evolved in a series of workshop programs, as the Chancellor mentioned. And to bring our story from the past into the present, leaning to the future, I'd like to show you just a few minutes of clips from the film. I make story quilts. This quilt is about my dreams. When I was growing up, I had many dreams to be a doctor, to be a nurse, but then I discovered dance. This is uh, a dancer, and these are also little dancers going around. You're the artist, so you create what it is that you want to represent your dream. <laughs> the paper on the back, 
is so easy. We're going to try this. That's perfect. Yeah. What dream is this? Oh, that's a memory. That's like almost like a glue, and this is going to stay on. However, press it down. Listen to it sizzle. Listen. <laughs> Maybe she has a longer skirt. I'm making pants. Oh, pants. Okay. I wish I was that skinny. Yeah. It'll stitch down here, up here, over here. She's gonna have arms. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's your arm. That's your back. You're, you're doing the. You're doing the arms to your ball. You're doing the ball. Oh my gosh. I know that this was representing. Clouds. The clouds and the flowers and are those raindrops? I love it. I love it. Beautiful. And that's what you remember. But where do you remember this from? Where was this flower at? Was it in Sudan or Ethiopia? Sudan. Sudan. Okay. Easier for you, so you, yeah, that would be even maybe a little bit more. There you go. 
This is going to turn out great. It's going to be So the wonderful. principles of the project are basically trying to bring together the traditional Euro-white communities of Nebraska with the newest immigrants. These were all refugees from South Sudan. And I would say a guiding principle, there's a nice quote from Grace in 1926. She said, to be interested in others and to want to help is the answer to those who seek to make their lives interesting and happy as well as useful. No better opportunities present themselves than in the country districts or small towns where there are fewer organized agencies and a greater field for individual effort. Doing the next thing and making good at it has this certain advantage. You can never tell what it's going to lead to or what new and possibly thrilling experience is lying in wait just around the corner. And I think that's very much applied if you speak to, uh, honestly, when I talk about this project, everybody thinks, everybody thinks it's a project for the immigrant children, the refugee children, which it is to a degree, but I think it's much more for the local populations because they otherwise would have no contact. One of the women in the film, uh, well, Kay Griminger was an art teacher in Grand Island, uh, and when I first showed a rough cut of the film, I just asked for comments. And, Kay can be kind of hard-boiled about things. She's not very sentimental things. She raised her hand and she said, this experience changed my life. I never would have talked to any of these kids. I never would have known any of them. It's really opened my eyes about things. So I think that, uh, you know, in general, we, we, we get more by giving than we, than we give. You've been listening to the Nebraska Lecture featuring John Sorensen. Support for this program is provided by Humanities Nebraska and the National Endowment for the Humanities.